Welcome to RNFM Radio, Nursing Unleashed. We're your hosts, Kevin Ross and Keith Carlson, and we bring you inspiring interviews with a wide array of nursing experts, innovators, and entrepreneurs. We're glad you're here. So welcome and enjoy the show. of RNFM Radio on the Pulse of Nursing. This, of course, is June 24th, 2013, and we are about to launch or uh, just start talking about our episode number 68. Can you believe it? 68, and we are uh, rounding here the end of June. Of course, without a doubt, this is a platform where we are always discussing the latest news, trends, and hot topics in the world of nursing and healthcare. Our dynamic guest list, both past and present, spans the whole spectrum from nurse authors, bloggers, speakers, filmmakers, and entrepreneurs. These are the leaders and thought provokers in the industry, and we are, of course, thrilled to be able to bring them to you right here with us on RNFM. Again, welcome. I am Kevin Ross here in my studio in Colorado, and my fellow co-host, as always, Keith Carlson. He's in New Mexico, hanging out down there in Santa Fe. He's here with us tonight. Keith, it is always a pleasure to be with here, you here tonight, sir. And how are you doing in Santa Fe? I'm great, Kevin. Thank you. Greetings from the city different, as Santa Fe is called. And we're just doing great down here, aside from a huge plume of smoke that's rising over the mountain as we speak. So we might be in... My wife and I might be escaping from the city this coming weekend to get away from the smoke. But so far, so good, not so bad. We're still, as always, Kevin, like we talked about last week, thinking of the folks up in Colorado who really have dealt with the fires and the smoke, losing their homes and their lives and their possessions. So people down here are still really focused and thinking and praying for the people up in Colorado. And otherwise, things are exciting here at RNFM Radio. We have some great posts up on the blog. We have an exciting guest tonight who we'll introduce in just a few minutes. And again, welcome to episode 68. And Kev, if you'll give a little roundup of how to get in touch and stay in touch, then we'll move on to our very intriguing and wonderful guest. Well, you bet, sir. And of course, if you are listening to us live tonight, you must be hanging out on rnfmradio.com or over on blogtalkradio.com forward slash rnfmradio, where you can hear all of our shows live, as we are tonight, Monday nights, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, or archived any time of day, night, uh, weekend, whenever you want to listen to us, uh, fully clothed or, or whatever your choice is, just listen to us uh, no matter what. And, of course, if you want to uh, hang out over on iTunes, you can check us out over there. We are under the podcast um, section, so in the search bar under iTunes, type in RNFM Radio, uh, and then you can find us. Um, over there under our podcast. 
And, of course, you can also hang out over in ProMedNetwork.com over with our community over there. And so ProMedNetwork.com forward slash RNFM radio. Now, we are hanging out in tweet chat, and I just want to let our listeners know that uh, we are under the hashtag RNFM radio. And I did just tweet out a thank you very much to one of our community members, one of our listeners, and she's from the Philippines, uh, Chiki Ravalowski. She had uh, reached out to me on Google Plus based on a post that I'll talk to you about in just a moment, but she embedded our RNFM radio player on her blog. So you can follow her. So check out the hashtag RNFM radio. I just tweeted out from at Innovative Nurse. And you can follow her over there and check out her blog and follow her. And we so appreciate your support and uh, much gratitude over here. Now, we also want to invite you to call in uh, live with us tonight. Now, you can listen. That's fine. You can listen if you just call in. Uh, but, but certainly questions or comments are, are welcome. You can call in the number 347-308-8064. No matter what kind of phone you're using, Skype, Google, Voice, Cell phone, landline, and I was actually just joking about landline since I haven't had one since the 90s. Doesn't matter. Use a phone. Can and strain. Morse code probably won't work, but you can hang out with us in the studio and certainly come on the air with us. And, of course, we will give you a roundup of the upcoming guests at the end of the show. And, oh, one quick thing. Check out RNFM Radio for the latest blog post because we are dialing up the frequency. Keith and I will be coming to you more often because of the uh, power of RNFM Radio and the platform and really mostly the power of our community because we are booked well into November. And Keith and I have a lot of things to talk about, and we just can't get it all done on Monday night. So we are going to be coming to you sometime in the very near future during the week, daytime hours. We will let you know more details to follow Please tune in. That's a mouthful. Back to you, Keith. Wow, Kevin, that was quite the marathon. And and saying fully clothed was that was hilarious. I had a good <laughs> I had a good laugh there. You know, no one knows yeah. what we're wearing when we're broadcasting. But, you know, I'm in my apartment, my my little casita here in Santa Fe. So I'm actually dressed today. But then again, you know, you never know. And we're going to be talking yeah. about yeah. some characters tonight from the book The Twelve Rooms of the Nile and while it's not salacious there's some interesting aspects to this book and we'll be talking about them soon with our guest so I wanted to introduce our wonderful guest who is Enid Shomer she won the Iowa Short Fiction Award for her first collection of stories called Imaginary Men and she also won the Florida Book Awards Gold Medal for her second book Tourist Season she's also the author of four books of poetry her work has appeared in The New Yorker The Atlantic The Paris Review and many other publications her newest book a novel, her first novel, The Twelve Rooms of the Nile, was published by Simon & Schuster in 2012. Ms. Schomer's work has been collected in more than 50 anthologies and textbooks, including Poetry, a HarperCollins Pocket Anthology, Best American Poetry, and News Stories from the South, The Year's Best. The Twelve Rooms of the Nile is a fascinating account of the fictional 
and I'll say intellectually and emotionally intense, meeting in Egypt of a young Florence Nightingale and the French writer Gustave Flaubert, of whom we'll learn more during the course of this conversation. Chomer conducted extensive research about the concurrent travels in Egypt of Nightingale and Flaubert, and she has great insight into the early years of Nightingale's life, and we're very excited for her to share those with us. In 2013, she won the Lifetime Achievement Award in Writing from the Florida Humanities Council, and Enid lives in Tampa, Florida. So, Enid Shomer, it is a delight to welcome you to RNFM Radio. Oh, thank you, Keith. It's a great pleasure to be here and to be part of your show tonight. Oh, it, it really is our pleasure. And sometime earlier this year, or maybe late last year, I received an email or some kind of communication about your book and your publisher sent me a copy and I was just absolutely blown away in a pleasant way by the 12 rooms denial and I wrote a review on my blog and contacted you and having you here is such an honor so thank you for being here and we wanted to ask first the 12 rooms of the Nile is your first novel and of course as nurses most of us are nurses most of the listeners to the show how did you become interested in Florence Nightingale in the first place? Well, like uh, like most people, I had heard of her. I, she was known to me as the very heroic uh, lady with the lamp uh, of the Crimean War. But I didn't know much beyond that until I read an early biography called Eminent Victorians by Lytton Strachey, which is a classic. I think it's still taught at a lot of colleges. And that is one of the most unfortunate portraits of Florence Nightingale that's ever been done. He paints her as a harridan, a person who worked two people to death who were friends with her. She actually forced them to work to death, according to Lytton Strachey. He just, you know, he depicted her in an extremely unflattering way, and he was such a good writer that you sort of wanted to pile on, if you know what I mean. And I realized when I was uh, approaching writing this book that that could not be an accurate portrait, so I began reading all of the biographies, and of course they were all very different. And then I eventually turned to all of the original sources, and she was an extremely prolific writer. Most of your listeners probably know of her classic called Notes on Nursing, but she also ran the public health. She invented public health as a system, as a government system for India, working for the British government. She wrote the equivalent of a whole bookshelf full of books, maybe 17 huge fat tomes on nursing, on sanitation, on public health, um, as well as all her diaries, uh, her letters. So she was a really wonderful, very funny, prolific writer. So the more I read, the more interested I became in her. She She's just the most fascinating figure I think I've ever encountered. She was probably the best educated woman of her generation in England, uh, although her parents fought her tooth and nail. She did manage to study statistics and math. She devised some of the first pie charts to show morbidity rates in the Crimean War, which she reduced by two-thirds. Um, she was an amazing, amazing woman. She also suffered greatly because of her genius. And the, the novel picks up when she's in a state of real despair and her parents have fought her desire to work at the local hospital. Now, remember, nursing has not been invented as a profession yet. Exactly. At this point, at this point in 
the year 1849, nurses are considered, and I'm going to quote her mother, to be like slatterns or opium smokers. They're considered very loose women because of what they see at the hospital and because they're unchaperoned with male doctors and so forth. So her family was not about to let her cause a a scandal to the family name by having her hang out at the local hospital. So in great despair, she set off for Egypt to try to find herself and find her way and find her destiny. And she went with some family friends so that she was properly chaperoned, as well as a lady's maid named Troutwine, who's a major character in the book, a sort of uh, poignant and comic character both. So, so this is a point in her life before she has discovered her calling. It's before the Crimean War. She's 29 years old, and she's completely lost at this point, at the beginning of the novel. Well, that is a wonderful synopsis of how you discovered her and how the book begins. And, Kevin, I think you might have had a comment here to add well, after just that. Something, well, no, it was amazing because, you know, to be honest, Enid, you know, as I think generally speaking, that synopsis of Florence, uh, I don't think we truly know enough about that side of her, um, yeah. especially some of the, the newer generation uh, the newer nurses out there, and I have to say, for the younger folks, if you're you're not living on the edge or going against the grain or taking some chances until you're hanging out at the hospital on chaperone with a few of those docs out there, I mean, you 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 <laughs> right. want you want a party? You hang out with Florence, and she's got it going on. That's an amazing, um, I guess, interpretation or vision. Uh, I did not realize that. Uh, or, as far as you know, nurses how nurses were held were. in such low regard, yes. you mean? Yeah, yes. they were really oh, just well, uh, one notch up from that a now. prostitute. <laughs> yeah, that's not, I mean, I think, not true anymore. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, I think, I think we kind of struggle with some of our identity stuff, but but certainly in that yeah. regard, no, I, I was unaware yeah. of that uh, before you came on board, um, you know, with your book, and of course, uh, giving us that synopsis here on RNF. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah and no, there was no profession for nurses whatsoever. It was just somebody who hung out at the hospital and might have bought, brought some wet rags to put on your forehead. Um, nothing had been professionalized at this point, at least in England and France. There was one place where nursing was getting professionalized, and Flo ends up going there in the novel. It's in Germany. It's called Kaiserswerth. Mm-hmm. But that takes place very late in the novel and only after most of the action. So uh, that's something she turns to uh, as a as final sort of last-ditch effort to find her way. Right, exactly. Now, Enid, in the course of the novel, of course, very soon into the this incredible story, Florence is traveling with Trout, of course, her uh, her lady's maid, as you said, who's right. sort of like almost the... Sancho Panza to her uh, Don Quixote in a way, not, not, yeah, not she is. probably not she, a good. She's right. definitely a foil for her because she's from a different social class, and that was really important to me that to show that Flo, despite her great ambition to heal the entire world, really, she had a mm-hmm. marvelous instinct for helping people. She really couldn't get along with her maid. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. because she didn't know how to cross the class barrier. So yeah, she's chaperoned by Trout and by these two good friends, the Bracebridges, 
uh, Selena and Charles, who are friends of her parents, who have rescued her more than once from family battles. So, so she goes with them. And then, as you're probably about to say, I think, she, shortly after she arrives in Egypt, she meets Flaubert. Exactly. Now, for our listeners who perhaps aren't familiar with Gustave Flaubert or maybe read something of his in high school or early in their college careers, can you tell us a little about him? Yes. He was a year he was born a year after she was in 1821. She was born in 1820. He is I call him the bad boy of French literature. Um, for a lot of reasons. One is that the book he wrote that made him famous was called Madame Bovary. And one reason it made him famous was that it was put on trial for obscenity. Uh-huh. And so at the time, he even wrote letters to his friends saying, I shall be famous. My book will never die because of this trial. <laughs> you know, this is going to make my book. The book was published in serialized form, and there really wasn't much to the obscenity charge, the only problem was that the um, the general reader couldn't seem to distinguish between the author's voice and the character's voice. You know, who was doing the ill was it, was the author endorsing the bad behavior, and in which case was it, in her case was adultery. Was he endorsing adultery? Well, he claimed he wasn't. You know that it was her point of view. Anyway, there was a big trial, and uh, this all happened after he came back from Egypt. He too was lost. But he was a writer through and through. That's all he ever wanted to do. It was all he was any good at. And one of the unusual coincidences about these two geniuses, and they definitely were geniuses, uh, they didn't want to go the ordinary way that most people went. Both of them were completely antagonistic to the idea of marriage. Now, for, for Flaubert, being a man with all the privileges of manhood that you know obtained in the year 1849-1850 it's not so surprising but for a woman of Florence's class and she was from a wealthy family this was completely completely unacceptable her job in life was to marry her job in life was to run a great house and supervise her servants and produce a passel of children so this was another reason her parents really did not understand her. They really were offended by all of her ideas, this one in particular. And right before she left for Egypt, she turned down her only serious suitor, Richard Monckton Milnes, who was a very prominent uh, poet and member of parliament and biographer of Keats, a very prominent man. He seemed just perfect for her, according to her parents, but she turned him down and then she left for Egypt. So... Here you have two very unhappy geniuses who are going against the grain in every way who meet while escaping in the Orient, which is what they called the Middle East at that point, the colorful Orient, where you can behave differently than you can at home. You know, it's a little uh, bit like yes. what, stays in Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Ah, so what happens <laughs> what in Vegas stays in Egypt. It was from the Orient in the 1800s, early 1900s. That's it. Yes. Okay. So, uh, so it was a place where they were freer to be them themselves than they would have been in France or in England. I see, and this was the Victorian age, uh, listeners. This was the so Victorian there age. were 
Yes, there were many strictures on the behavior, especially of women at the time, though Flaubert was a great frequenter of prostitutes, I, I understand. Oh, he loved prostitutes. Uh, along with language, well, he loved prostitutes. Those were his two favorite uh, things in life, prostitutes and language. <laughs> and he, he patronized them both heavily. <laughs> and he never did marry. He never did marry. Um so, so what I've created in the book is a relationship for them, and I don't want to give it all away, but they do meet and they do form an intense friendship. Um, and, you know, I don't want to give away the plot, but uh, based on some great similarities, such as not, wanting, not believing in the institution of marriage, uh, not believing in the strictures of the Victorian age, um, Flo is absolutely appalled by... For example, the medical practices of 1849 that she has observed that when a man is ill, they'll undress the man down to nothing. When a woman is ill, they will just loosen her collar. Yeah. <laughs> literally, literally, they will not. Und- you know, the doctor will never undress a female patient in England. It's just not done. So she yeah. recognizes, you know, what this means for the health of women. I mean, even right. during childbirth, women are clothed. Um, wow. Yeah. That so. that is that sounds just so uncomfortable. And and Florence was definitely <laughs> just a radical, a pioneer, um, yeah. for for sure. And you know, going back to you know what you were saying regarding, um, I guess with having the suitor and that she's not supposed to take this path. I mean, obviously, this even translate uh, would translate even in today's world. Not so much maybe going uh, the nursing route. I mean, of course, I do know personally I've had some friends who, I guess if you could say they came from money, and maybe the parents were disappointed that uh, the um, woman chose the path of nursing instead of maybe becoming a physician or scientist or something more prestigious. Um, And I've also had friends who wanted to go into the Peace Corps, volunteer, or take jobs like in social work, and and they've had to really go against the grain in their family uh, to to do these types, to provide these types of services to to people who need it most, and it's just where they gravitate to that. Yeah, Um, I mean, Florence didn't care anything for money. She finally worked out a deal, and this happened shortly after she came back from Egypt, where she convinced her father to give her a certain amount of money a year so she could live on her own. And she had very strict rules when she lived on her own. For example, (laughs) I love this one, neither, well, her parents could visit her. Her father could visit her anytime. Her mother and sister could only visit her separately. She couldn't stand to have them visit at the same time because they were both kind of harpies. You know, they both didn't approve of her. They both didn't understand what she was doing why she preferred to live in a small a little apartment and, and write reports, blue books, about the health situation in India rather than marry and have a grand home. So uh, she had to protect herself from this kind of disapproval or she wouldn't have survived. Wow. Well, I think a lot of what you're saying tonight, Enid, may be eye-opening for a lot of us. I've learned some of this from reading some of your articles and speaking with you on the phone and and reading the book, but a lot of this will be new to us because we have a mythical, stereotypical, almost 
how would you say it, iconographical version yeah. of yeah. her in our mind, if iconographical is a word. But she mm-hmm. is an icon, and she is a stereotype, and she is used in many ways in many different venues. So how right. have people reacted to this version, quote-unquote, of Florence Nightingale, even though it's fictional, but it is based on a great deal of research that you've Yeah, yeah, I used her, all her diaries. Um, you know, she was suicidal at numerous times. She was not, I mean, she really suffered for her beliefs. She really did suffer for her beliefs. Um, well, the reaction has been among those who've studied her. For example, the woman who wrote Nightingale, she thought it was extremely persuasive, um, I haven't heard from the British biographer, but um, other scholars seem to have, you know, taken well to it and thought it represented her well, uh, especially the emotional complexity of her life. Um, are you still there? Oh, yeah, yes. we're here. Oh, good. I, was, oh, good. I heard a little flickering, I, and as I mentioned earlier, we're having a rainstorm, so I wasn't sure. Oh, no. Well, no, we're just you know, listening in no, no, no. We, I, I was Keith and I have a chat outside of the uh, radio show just so we can keep up with each other. And I was just telling wow. him, you're an amazing storyteller. I just love listening to this side of Florence. Um, oh, good. I mean, this, this is amazing, and, and I think our listeners will appreciate that too. So you have a very, uh, it's a gift. You're the way that you're telling this, and so well. And um, she was a I, true radical. I think it's hard to overstate, impossible to overstate mm-hmm. how radical she was in her day. Another thing your readers may not know is that she wrote a book called Cassandra, not a very long book, and some people think she wrote part of it while she was on this Egypt trip because it was such a crucial year for her in terms of straightening out what she was willing to, the cost of what she was willing to pay for who she wanted to become. Anyway, this is an incredibly radical feminist book, but she would not allow it to be published till after her death. And she kept revising it to make it, milder and milder, but it's essentially a searing critique of the British family. Uh, quite wow. entertaining to read, quite entertaining. Was it, you know, funny, um, because she has a great sense of humor as well. She's not humorless. She's got a wonderful sense of humor, and so she talks about what a waste of time it is to hear your father read the newspaper aloud to you because it's good for you every day, rather wow. than let you read it yourself. <laughs> so, so, yeah, she's she's pretty far out there and um you know those who understood her her friends the bracebridges who figure heavily in the novel and and are you know sympathetic to her and also kind of comical characters they actually ended up going with her to the Crimean war so she wasn't alone she had these people helping her do some of the worst uh you know kind of the worst what can i call it scut work uh so that she could do the more administrative things. So she had her true believers, and those people really supported her, but most people did not understand her. Um, you might be interested to know that the first job she got before the Crimean War, when she went and took a bunch of nurses with her and therefore you know, professionalized nursing and created this great mythology of the woman with the lamp, the first job she got was running a home for distressed gentlewomen. That was the name of it. Um, a friend suggested it would be a great name for a bar, the Home for Distressed Gentlewomen. <laughs> I think it would be funny. Uh, anyway, this was for women who had fallen on hard times, 
who would be considered gentlewomen under other conditions but weren't anymore for whatever reason, lack of money, being abandoned by their husbands, you know, so forth and so on. Of course, women could not own property in 1850, so they were completely at the mercy of society. So that was her first job. Yeah, that was her first job, and she did a bang-up job of it, and then... Eventually, the prime minister asked her to take some nurses over to the Crimean War because the uh, British soldiers were dying and just fly, like flies, basically. This is fascinating, Enid, because uh, it, it's, it seems very similar to, I don't know if you watch uh, Downton Abbey, but a very popular show um, on PBS. I have and seen it. yeah. Yes, and one of the characters uh, was trying to help women who were uh, tough times, their spouse. Uh, perished in the war or uh, divorce or whatever, and uh, they had to make money uh, by other means to support the kiddos, you know, the, the babies that they had, or just to support themselves. And this woman was right. trying to help them rehab and bring them in and try to get them yeah. jobs yeah. again. But but what they were up against, because they were labeled, um, I mean, the right. Scarlet Letter for sure. I mean, people knew yeah. these women. Uh, yeah. And, and to they even were be in the same room. Women. Yeah, to be in the same in their presence, it was almost yeah, like you were tainted by being in their presence almost. Yes. Uh, Oh, absolutely. I remember in that show, one of the one of the servants refuses to bring tea to the woman in question because she doesn't want to come near her. Exactly. Right. Right. She just proves so. Well, you have to remember there was no social network. There were poor houses. There were uh, debtors' prisons. You know, it was an unforgiving time. Um, there was lots of room for people like Florence and other reformers who wanted to do something to help the problems of the poor and the ill. The, the urge, the, 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 the need was urgent and tremendous, just tremendous. You know, the, what was the average lifespan? It was about 40. Right. So, right. So, so these were very interesting times. They're times that a lot of us have learned about Kind of offhandedly through shows like Downton Abbey or or right. television or film, et cetera, and also literature. There's lots of literature from the Victorian age. And Enid, it sounds like you did a lot of extensive research about the Victorian age, about Flaubert's yeah, about yeah. Flaubert's yeah. life, about Nightingale's life, about the social the social milieu at the time. So do you see Nightingale as, would you characterize her as someone who was, quote-unquote, a victim of the Victorian age but rose above it and carved her own path? Did she? Oh, I don't think she was a victim. I think she was was triumphant. Um, Right. uh, And she lived long enough so that she got her due. Uh, She lived to be 90. Um, I did find one very curious thing when I interviewed a bunch of nurses. In I, I went to the there's a lovely museum in London called the Florence Nightingale Museum. It's small and it's near St Thomas Hospital, which she founded, which was had one of the first nursing schools in it. Um, and it has a lot of her personal belongings, the, uh, her dresses, her medicine chest, um, some of her diaries. Uh, that sort of thing. It's not huge, you know, but it's very personal and very moving. Um, anyway, I interviewed a bunch of nurses informally there, and there was this great urban legend about her, which I've not been able to explain, mm-hmm. which is that, that a lot of the nurses thought she died of syphilis. Oh. 
which <laughs> which is so <laughs> odd. Now, Flaubert did die of syphilis, which he caught on the Nile visiting all his beloved prostitutes. But I am <laughs> absolutely sure in my heart and soul that Florence Nightingale died a virgin, and she died at 90, and you don't live to be 90 with tertiary syphilis, you know. Good point. Um, so, but but that, I could never figure out where that came from, you know, whether it was just some little story that got started and just never died down, or, what, you know, what hmm. the heck is that about? I don't know. Anyway, it's interesting. Right. Um, wow. Well, yes, I did yes. do a lot of research. I, I you know, I went also to France to investigate some places she had lived as a young girl before she went to Egypt, and I also wanted to see where Flaubert had been. And I didn't get to go to Egypt, but I had lived in the Middle East, so that really helped. Um, but I, and, and I told myself it was okay that I didn't get to go to Egypt because I couldn't go to an 1850, you know, I wouldn't have been able to go in 1849 anyway. It would have been different. So, <laughs> but I did That's look so at a true. lot of films and... I did. Um, you know, it took me seven years to write the book because the research was really onerous. I didn't want to do anything that couldn't have happened. And so, most of the characters in the book are based on real people, and I researched them as much as I could. The only character I had to completely make up was Trout. I couldn't uh, find anything besides her birth and death records. So. Because they wouldn't write anything about a handmaiden, so why would you be able to yeah, find I mean, anything about her? That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So, she Kevin, did. I think you had a question. Well, it's the thing, you know, kind of building onto your question, Keith. It's, I guess, we should be thankful for Florence in the mid 1800s as she was then, a pioneer, uh, blazing the trails, maybe even Hellraiser, whatever, however you want to portray yeah. her. Um, how would she be today, though? I mean, would this just be would she just blend in, or was she just that unique, that big of a presence or a personality? Yeah, um, of course, this is just a guess, but I think she mm-hmm. would still be a huge personality because she was <laughs> so so gifted in so many ways. You know, when you read her writing, she she has a book called Letters from Egypt, which are just charming. They're some of the best travel writing you'll ever read. Uh, the, the editor took out all the suicidal stuff from her diary and just put in the nice letters. Um, he left a little despair, but not, you know, the, the other stuff that was going on. And it makes a really nice uh, look. So she could have been a writer easily. I have no doubt she could have been a mathematician uh, or a linguist. She spoke about six languages. While she oh. was in Egypt, she taught herself hieroglyphics, by the way. <laughs> and she was Oh, just, she just her. taught herself hieroglyphics. Okay. Yeah, she just taught herself. She, had, she brought some books. She had consulted with some Egyptologists before she went. And she she could do that. She was an incredibly brilliant woman, very gifted. Wow. All before YouTube mm-hmm. and Google, people, I'll tell you, she taught herself hieroglyphics. Amazing. <laughs> amazing. You heard right? it here first. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. She was also teaching herself Hebrew so she could read the Bible in the original. She was quite, oh, I've forgotten another thing about her, which is very surprising, and that is that she was a mystic. Besides being just just a sort of ordinarily religious person, Church of England, you know, uh, basically, she believed that God spoke to her. And there's no real tradition of that in England. France, yes, you have Joan of Arc and lots of other European countries, you have a mystical tradition. She actually believed when she was 17 that God spoke to her. This is in the novel. 
and I didn't make it up. <laughs> and then he said, um, I have plans for you. But then he didn't tell her what they were. So she spent the next 12 years trying to figure out what were those plans, and that's where the novel starts, when she's in her 29th year and still trying to figure out what she is supposed to be doing. Uh, but she said that God spoke to her three or four times in her life. So. And this is where Gustave Flaubert comes in, because he's in a period in his life in the novel, which we know was also true, that he'd written his first novel, his friends had told him to burn it in the fire or throw it away, and right. he was really questioning what was happening for him, so he went on a trip basically assisting a friend of his who was doing research on Egyptian antiquities, which of That's which right. not much was known at the time. So That's here right. he was a great thinker, an intellectual, a year younger or older than Nightingale, you said? Younger. 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 And younger. they verbally spar and throughout right. the book, and they write each other letters, and they're, they have couriers who are taking their letters back and forth. They go on several little trips together, and right. he and his companion even come onto the boat and have a meal and share drinks with, with Nightingale's, I guess you would call them chaperones. Right. And it's a very interesting psycho-emotional portrait of the two of them as well. And I was yeah, wondering... Yeah, there's a lot of electricity between them, let's put it that there way. There certainly there's, is. Yeah. And Nightingale, of course, is... Uh, well, we know that she's a virgin, and she's quite virginal and naive about men. And Flaubert is a frequenter of prostitutes and a great drinker and right. reader <laughs> and writer, I assume, of pornography and... I was wondering if you had a passage from the book you'd like to read just to paint us a little portrait of her or what was happening at that time. I know uh, you have several passages chosen. Yeah, let's see. Um, I don't want to read anything too salacious. Um, oh, please do. Not that there's anything salacious. Well, um, she was very... Uh, a lot of the book takes place in Abu Simbel, which is one of the oldest and biggest monuments in Egypt. So I thought I'd read how in the morning she would go up and study these huge, huge statues. Um, they seem to speak to her. I'll read a little bit of that, and then maybe in a bit I can read something else. The great rock temple of Ramses II was the most imposing sight Flo had seen in her 29 years. No small claim for a woman who had toured most of the European capitals, crossed the Alps and Apennines, and swooned at her own insignificance from the crags and vales of Scotland. It had even replaced the Sistine Chapel, where only a year before she had lain for hours on the floor beside her maid, Mariette, drifting upward to join the muscled bliss on Michelangelo's ceiling. She expected to observe a different grandeur and wisdom in Egypt. Her heart thudding, she faced west, where the colossi loomed invisibly. Slowly, as though limbed with pencil on black paper, the outline of their mountain abode emerged from the dark surround. The cliff turned a metallic gray, so transitory and ghostly that the statue seemed only now, after three millennia, to succumb with a last glimmer to their eternal stillness. Then the sun cracked open behind her, a ruddled splinter at the horizon. As the light gained radiance, it reversed the first impression of fading glory to one of impending majesty. Dawn began to burnish the pairs of disproportionate legs, the hands like flounders in the laps. The ancient stone carvers had rendered the lower half of the seated figures crudely, 
lavishing their skill and passion on the magnificent heads and headdresses, and particularly upon the pharaoh's visage. Oh, that face, repeated everywhere in Egypt, but nowhere more powerfully. It combines serenity with absolute power. Such calmness of soul moved her to exaltation. She could look upon that face every day and never tire of it. Even the head that lay choked in the sand did not detract from the awe. Ramses the Great was great. He had ruled for more than 60 years of a golden age. What must it have been like when he passed to the field of reeds at 96? Four generations had known no other sovereign. They would have mourned his loss like the death of a god. And so on. She, you know, Mm. stays there. She... Mm. She has lots of thoughts about Egyptian religion, which she equates with Christianity. She sees lots of similarities, uh, uh, well, which I will well, not first, try to summarize. <laughs> right, Enid, your your writing is so beautiful, and I mentioned that in the blog post I wrote on my blog, Digital Doorway, when I reviewed Twelve Rooms of the Nile a few months ago. You are such a gifted writer, and I know you've written a lot of poetry. And yeah. personally, I feel that your poetic voice really comes through in your prose. I just have to say that. Thank you. I think it does, too, and I think that's what made writing the book fun for me, was trying to capture these extreme moments of feeling and of and of visual beauty and so on. You know, to try to capture that with words is challenging, and it's fun if you like doing it. Mm, of course. Now, Flaubert is quite the character in the book as well, and I'm wondering how scholars of Flaubert reacted because you're depicting him in in the way you've chosen to, which I'm sure is very historically accurate. So, how does Flaubert figure into the story in terms of history and and his place and how he related to Nightingale with in the context of the right. story? Well, I should say for your listeners, first of all, that they both really were in Egypt at the exact same moment. That's what kind of got me going onto the book. I I discovered that when I first started writing it, that they were actually both there. They both traveled on the same boat to the navigable portion of the river from Cairo. So we know that he saw her because he records it in his diary in a rather funny way. He talks about seeing a a woman who, quote, must be English because she's wearing a hideous green night eye shade attached to her bonnet. And we know that she had a hideous green eye shade attached to her bonnet <laughs> that she wore all the time. It must have looked very bizarre, a kind of hand-rigged sunglass outfit. Um, so uh. they really were on the Nile. They were towed on the same boat on the same day to the navigable portion of the river. Their itineraries literally were off by just a few days here and there. It wasn't hard to fudge the dates and have them be in the same places without having to change too much. Mm. So so um, that was really the impetus for the book because I kept thinking, oh, they seem to be so different. She's so virginal and, so ge- and such a genius, and he's so naughty and he's such a genius, and oh, if only they could meet. I just had to see what happened when they met, and so that was my goal, to have them meet and then step aside, because that's what happens when I write a book. I step aside and I let the author, let the characters do the talking, and that's what it feels like. It feels like they're just channeling through me, and I wanted to see what would happen. And it turned out they had a lot in common. First of all, their despair. Second of all, their genius. 
their feeling that they didn't quite belong, you know, in any particular group because they were such individualists. Now, I have heard from some of the Flaubert scholars because my publisher sent some books to them, too, and they've enjoyed it. They've enjoyed it. And because I never really, you know, wandered very far from things that I knew to be true, I did, you know, put words in both their mouths. I mean, he's working on a rather obscene project um, in the novel, which he never worked on in life, but I felt he could have. Um, He's writing an encyclopedia of uh, women's genitalia, which is called something funnier in the book. Um, (laughs) And um, I felt like he could have done that because he did so many transgressive things. Uh, One of his last books, his real books, is called The Dictionary of Received Ideas, and it's hilarious. It's a dictionary of definitions that are, you know, not accurate definitions. They're funny definitions. Um, So... He had a wonderful sense of humor, and he deployed it whenever he could. And so did she. They were a great match for each other in terms of humor. Well, wow, know, Enid, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm sitting deep in my chair listening to everything you're saying. Again, a wonderful storyteller. And the book, any interest in a screenplay? I mean, quite frankly, from what you're telling our audience, we probably are not talking about a made-for-TV movie because um, – it's it is a little deeper than that. We might be thinking HBO or Showtime or something like that yeah. for after hours. Yeah. But what an amazing story and I mean, has there been any interest? Well, to, um of course my agent to, sent it to his uh-huh. Hollywood agent who thought it was uh-huh. brilliant, quote unquote, not to brag. But she said it would <laughs> take a very intelligent director. Probably a European. I don't know what this says about American directors, <laughs> but um <laughs> So, so far, no nibbles, but, you know, I'm hoping something will happen. Well, we will work on that and try to get the word out. Pardon me? Right. We'll work on that. We'll get the word We need to go to Cannes. We need to to start pushing it over there. Um, Sorry, you know, for the United States, nothing personally to the directors and producers here. Uh, but we're, right. we're we're going international. Well, I mean, we're it is overseas. a little brainy if you think about it. Yeah. You know, Florence Nightingale is not um, she's not the cheerleader type. <laughs> you know, she's, That's right, she's right. intense. She's complicated, and I would even go so far as to say she's difficult. That's but right. But very and rewarding. If, very rewarding. And we could have Woody Allen direct, write and direct it, but then we'd have to have Flaubert be the Allen-like character, wringing his hands and That's you know, with, <laughs> he would yeah. be terrible. He would be um, terrible. Well, so. He would be terrible. No, I know <laughs> yeah, who I'd but, like to direct it. I, I have my dream director, but she oh, doesn't know about the book. Jane Campion. Who? Jane, Jane Campion. Campion. Who course. directed um, The Piano. The, oh, yes, I was right. going to say The Piano. This falls right in line with that. Mm-hmm. We want to tweet out this show to her tonight. Um, we will. We are... We need any of our international listeners, certainly, uh, you know, France, Europe, that would be great. But we are going to – I'm going to tweet out to Jane. Um, oh, have her listen great. into this episode uh, to find you, to get on it, get on this book, and turn it into a movie. That's right. Wouldn't that be wonderful? 
I can see right it as in. a multi-part HBO, too. My, my oh, agent, who's also very dreamy about these things, said, oh, it could be a six-part HBO easily, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, Absolutely. you know, people have to know about it. There are so many books that would make marvelous movies. I am just in awe of the fact that they are not made more frequently. You know, the ones that I think would make great movies are usually not made into movies. I, I don't know. It's, That's a good point. That's a good point. But this would also make a great play, and I also thought it could even make a great opera. I could see Philip uh-huh. Glass taking this on, for instance. Yes, I could see that, too. And uh, a friend yeah. of mine who has set some of my work to, you know, has made um, an operatic performance out of a po- poem sequence of mine, knows about it. Now, I don't know what she's working on right now, hmm. but she does know about it, and I think she's interested. But, yeah, I think it could be something really accessible because they're such endearing characters, really. They certainly are, and you have the sexual tension between the, the naive virginal nightingale and the salacious prostitute frequenting Flaubert, and you have the sort of the Greek chorus of the, uh, how would you say, the the her two friends, family friends, who are the chaperones. And right. And then the, then the foil, the comic foil almost of Trout, the handmaid. Oh, so right. it's very interesting characters. And Flaubert, of course, is, is incredible. So uh, we would know, love the to... Whole, the whole backdrop of this, of the things I found out about the Victorians were utterly amazing. For example, I'll just give you this little juicy tidbit. The man that, uh, and there is a couple scenes with him, Richard Monckton Milnes, who was Flo's suitor and and definitely the favorite of her parents and her only serious boyfriend, really. Uh, She turned him down. He was absolutely crushed. Well, when I was in London, I learned that he had amassed in his lifetime the largest collection of pornography in Britain. And it's all housed at the British Library. And he did this as a hobby. He also wrote round-robin pornography with people like Sir Richard Burton and other prominent Victorians. I don't think Flo would have approved, (laughs) to put it mildly. Uh, So there was this big divide between, you know, kind of straight-laced behavior and then all this stuff under the surface that was... And I don't disapprove or approve of any of it. It's just an unusual circumstance to have people behaving one way socially and another way with other people that don't include women. Because this whole round-robin thing of writing pornography in the Victorian age, that was limited to men. Right, until Anais (laughs) Nin came along much later, so things had to get opened up. Yeah, yeah, they were very That's they were right. very segregated. The expectations for men and women were so interesting to discover when I was writing on this, you know, uh just mm. how little freedom the women had and how how little freedom men had in terms of getting to know women. That's right. And Enid, your publisher actually agreed to give away a copy of the book tonight on the show. The oh, great. Right. We're live on Twitter right now. We're running a tweet chat. It's quite, it's very quiet right now. We haven't had anyone out there on tweet chat. But if you are the first tweeter to tell us the birthplace of Gustave Flaubert, you will win a copy of The Twelve Rooms of the Nile in paperback when it first comes out very shortly. Make sure you put hashtag RNFM Radio in the tweet, and we will 
uh, send you a copy. Well, actually, the publisher will send you a copy. Or if you don't want to use Twitter and you're listening live right now, call 347-308-8064. That's 347-308-8064. Tell us the birthplace of Gustave Flaubert, and we will make sure you're sent a copy. So the first tweeter or the first caller, we'll put this up on our Facebook page if we don't have a taker tonight. So we know a lot of people listen uh, to the archived version of the show. But we would right. love to give away a copy of the book because it is such an incredible book. And Enid, I had a question for you. Sure. We, sp- we spoke on the phone last month and we talked about the double duty that Nightingale really serves in terms of stereotypes as a virginal angel of mercy, which right. at that stereotype applies to nursing in general, even now in the 21st century to a large extent. Mm-hmm. And also... She's seen as the fierce mother of nursing, holding the light, walking through the mud-strewn fields of the Crimea to staunch the wounds of the dying soldiers. So how yeah. do you see her, her real place in history? How would you place it? Because you're now a scholar of Nightingale. Yes, I, I do consider myself. I, I've read everything she's written and probably everything about her, um, it's like uh, up until the last year anyway. If something's been written in the last year, I haven't read it. Um well, I think both are true. You know that that both of those, both of those extremes are true. Plus, there's a great middle ground that that is lost in the sort of mythology making, the sense of humor, the um, the delicacy of her wit, the delicacy of her expression. If you read any of her letters or her or her books, uh, she's just incredibly gifted at expressing, articulate, gifted. So I think she was the fierce mother of nursing, and she also was, she was never a victim, though. I mean, she was always proudly holding that paper lantern as she walked the, you know, the halls doing her nightly rounds, and apparently she invented night rounds, right, with the paper lantern. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think they're both true, but they're both exaggerations. Right, so if those... If they're true, but they're exaggerations, would do you feel that your book and some of the literature out there is offering a more nuanced view of who she really, really was out in the world? Yes, I think if you read her, if you read the original sources, if you read her diary, you will find a lot. If you read my book, I hope I've been very true to her. Uh, I have to say that I came to love her as a character, and him too. And as far as I was absolutely able, I tried to represent her emotional life in all its complexity. You know, the, the craziness. Uh, she had terrible panic attacks. She had terrible suicidal ideation, all that stuff. But look what she did with her life, you know. She also had great joy in her life from the accomplishments. So, so I think um, her story is a story of persistence and... Um, and genius. Well, and and speaking of genius, I have to apologize, Enid. I was actually looking for Jane's social media presence. She, it's very, uh, I should say, scattered and very slim. Um, but I'm going to continue to try to reach out to her oh, to get great. this into her that hands. Never occurred to me. <laughs> well, it never occurred yeah, to me. I was me. looking. I, I think she. Um, I think she actually started a Twitter account. There's a there's an old Facebook page that hasn't been active for a few years now, so I think she tried, uh, but is still working on that as far as the Twitter. But 
I'll see what I can do to have her so get busy. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. But we can find an, her agent, someone who is tied to her, to uh, take the opportunity to ha- get the well, get this book great. into her hands. Or, or at well least, done, Kevin. Quite, quite honestly, listen to the show, not just to promote us, but to promote you, because, again, you're such a wonderful storyteller. I don't know how she wouldn't want to direct uh, this. So <laughs> well, as far as the uh, a vignette or an HBO special or a movie screenplay, what is going to be next for you? Where, where are we going to see you? Well, you're going to see me writing another book. <laughs> you okay. know, I'm not going to write a screenplay or anything because I don't have the, that skill set, really. Um, so I'm working on a couple of other projects right now. But I'm superstitious about talking about them, so let them remain mysterious. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about I think that. a lot of writers are superstitious. Like, if you talk about it, it might disappear, you know? Right. It's, it's right. such a right. magical process anyway. Nobody knows really how it works or, you know, why why these characters come to you and begin speaking to you or through mm. you. It's very, very mysterious. Well, you well are we would certainly very... love to have you back on when the mystery oh, is revealed so in some of the new projects. Yes. Yeah. Sure. And, Enid, I wanted to ask, before we go, we have a few minutes left, if you have a few minutes, because we're not, we have no... Uh, sponsors to go to or no commercials to cut to. Uh-huh. So do you have another little passage you'd like to read before we wind oh, up the okay. conversation? I, mean, I can find one if I didn't. Um... Okay. Mm-hmm. And again, folks, if you're listening live, call 347-308-8064. Tell us the birthplace of Gustave Flaubert. And we will make sure you're sent a copy of the book or tweet to RNFM Radio, hashtag RNFM Radio. And we'll put this out on our Facebook page after the show if we haven't had a winner by the end of the show. So, Ina, did you find something? Yes, I do. I have, a little, I have a little scene here where she's looking at her little medicine cabinet, which is, to her, I think I even say this, it's the way some women look at their jewelry. She looks at her medical implements. She's just crazy about it. So she's just returned from looking at the colossi come to light in the morning sun, and she's back in her cabin on her houseboat. Bending to a low cabinet, she retrieved a battered black wooden box, dear medicine chest, friend since she was 17. A carpenter in Willow had built it to her design. She grasped the brass handle, affixed on a piano hinge, the lid folded back to make a walled gallery. Her hands reached toward the contents, fluttering over them like a hummingbird in a sea of blossoms. Arranging her kit was the closest thing to play since childhood. She enjoyed it the way other women took pleasure organizing their jewelry, folding their shawls and pelerines, organizing toiletries on the bureau top. Pride of ownership, the glass and steel in her hands, the orderliness, all were deeply gratifying. On the top tier in compartments lay salves and implements, tar and camphor ointment, mint liniment, balm of arnica, scissors, golden-eyed straight and curved sailmaker's needles, and last, wrapped in a green velvet square, three surgical needles along with silk thread for sewing up wounds. Do you want me to keep going, or is that... <laughs> oh, you could. we would let you read for another half hour if you like. Is there a little bit more you'd like to read? Yes, yes. Satisfied with sure. the inventory, she proceeded to the drawers 
Here were metal tubes of smelling salts, as well as the box set of perfumes she'd brought as souvenirs in Italy the year before, four diminutive glass bottles, orange blossom from Spain, attar of roses from Smyrna, French lavender, and her favorite, frangipani from India. She never wore perfume. In warm weather, it attracted bees, and in winter, overpowered the shuttered rooms. Also, she did not, did not wish to advertise herself, but in the bedroom at home, with only her sister Parthi to see, she sniffed it or daubed it on the hem of her pillowcase or added a drop to the wash basin. Mm, wonderful. Thank you. It's so, so interesting to hear that she had her own custom-designed medicine chest before she really entered the world of what would become nursing. Yeah. That this is and, and that's an, in the museum in London. That, that medicine chest uh, still exists. It does. Yes. Oh, uh, wonderful. That's the reason I went there to see it because I thought it must be very important if she if she held on to it all her life, you know. Oh, that's really wonderful. I'd love to next time I go to London, I haven't been there for a long time. I'd love to go to the museum. I wasn't yeah, a nurse at the time it. when I was there. I will and oh, Kevin had just said that we have a winner of the book. GGRN1957. She tweeted on Twitter that Gustave Flaubert was born in Rouen, France. And right. you are absolutely right, Gigi. I actually tweeted out the Wikipedia page about Flaubert at the beginning of the show. So maybe you did your own research or you saw my tweet earlier, but well done. And we will make sure we stay in touch with you and get your address. So we'll have to get your email address so we can get some more information but Gigi will be reading your book oh wonderful congratulations Gigi yeah we're so excited thank Kevin thank you for taking care of that yeah oh I oh, think Kevin might be yeah. chatting with her right now oh. right so oh. we I wanted to ask another question Enid so how have nurses reacted to this book I know I wrote a um overwhelmingly positive review of the book. I was just absolutely taken with it. But have other nurses talked with you about it? Not too many, no. Actually not. Um, oh, dear. More scholars than nurses. I'm hoping... I, I believe that it's going to be reviewed at some other nursing sites. I'm not quite sure, though. Uh, so I, I'm not. I'm not able to answer that question in any detail yet. Okay. I hope they okay. like it. <laughs> Well, we're going to make sure. Figure. Yeah, we're going to make sure people learn about it, and we want to make sure our listeners know whether they're listening live or the listening archive to go to rnfmradio.com to our blog, and there's a post by me, but mostly it's snippets from a wonderful article written by Enid Shomer, which was published several years ago, and we wanted our listeners to get a little bit of taste of Enid in the written form as well. So go to rnfmradio.com, scroll down a couple posts, and you will find an article called Enid Shomer and Florence Nightingale. And you can read a review of, of the book on Digital Doorway as well, and I will make sure to tweet that out too. So, Kevin, are you back, or are you chatting with someone? I am back. Out? I was actually just I was congratulating Gigi, and um, I am tweeting out the post from Enid on RNFM Radio right now for our community. If they haven't already checked it out, we do encourage you to head on over there and check out this post. Great. So I'm tweeting it out Great. right now. Great, thank you. So, Enid, what what's the final message you would want nurses to take away about Nightingale from your story? What what would you like them to 
to understand about this icon? Oh, gee, that's such a good question, one that I haven't had before. I would want them to know what a, a human being she was, you know, that she wasn't this monolithically strong, always knew what she wanted to do, everything came easily. No, she struggled. So it's a story of triumph and struggle, really. And, and, mm. and you know, some definite backward steps, but she always made the most, I think, of even her losses, somehow. Now she did that, which is always an amazing thing to see someone do that. But uh, she's she's not, uh, you know, she's not made of steel and brick. She's got a big heart. Mm. Well, that's great to know, and that really brings her more to life for many of us. Yes. So, Kevin, do you, do you have something else you wanted to add here, too? Well, no, I think uh, as we are rounding out the hour uh, for Enid, we do, obviously, the shows about you tonight and about uh, the benefit of our community to know more about you and how they can find you. Of course, we can certainly tweet all of this info out, but to find Enid, you can head on over to her site, uh, EnidShomare.com, E-N-I-D, S-H-O-M-E-R.com. And, of course, you can head on over to Facebook as well, Facebook.com forward slash Enid Shomare. And quite frankly, I, I bet you you could just Google her and you'll find her on page one of yeah, the I, I think so. Sure I think that's true. Yeah. That's right. And you can also just Google Twelve Rooms of the Nile and read reviews of the book. My review will probably be on there and there'll be so many wonderful interviews. And I, I know on your website, Enid, you have some audio interviews as well and there's one from the BBC that you mentioned that we should right. definitely listen to. <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. A comedian who happens to love Flaubert uh asked to interview me. And it was a little daunting because he is a professional comedian, but it was fun to do, and it's fun to hear. Oh, that's great. I can't wait to listen to that. I'm sorry I didn't hear it before you came on the show. but It's it, very I brief. Just, yeah. It is. Oh. Okay. Well, we will yeah. listen to it. Well, I know Kevin and I haven't been absolutely a barrel of laughs tonight, but it's been so wonderful to have you on the show. And, oh, it's and been I think terrific I can... to be with you, and your questions were wonderful. And, and really uh, unique because of your backgrounds, you know. Uh, they're not the kind of standard questions I get, which tend to be more literary questions. Mm-hmm. And these, these were very interesting to me, and I thank, thank you for asking them. Well, Kevin, where else can we point Enid to, the American Journal of Nursing? I mean, there's so many places where nurses would want to hear about this book. Well, I, I do, I do think so, and, and quite fr- frankly, uh, on Facebook, and there's a presence out there, the Student Nurses Association, uh, because you know, Enid, we are in, inundated with nursing theory. Florence, of course, comes up, but it's right. not as sexy as this book is. I'll tell you, <laughs> we, need, we need the edge here because we get, you know, it's just we want to get past that because we want to get to all of the exciting stuff about nursing, but quite frankly, taking a moment and just reading this book, I mean, it gets me kind of hot for nursing theory a little bit more. And, and you know, oh, that's um, good to hear. and it's not because it's 90 degrees in, in Colorado, but it's, <laughs> this is wonderful stuff. So I think we should start there. Obviously, for the seasoned nurses, um, you know, as, as Keith stated, there are ver- various nursing organizations out there. Each state has... A, uh, a a body and entity within the American Nurses Association. Each state does, but but I think we start with the students. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna send some info over there 
to the Student Nurses Association and get well, them you could send all hot and bothered. Some of them too. Yeah. Sure. That's sure. right. And, sure. and Enid, if you're on LinkedIn, we'll connect offline, but off the air. But we'll start connecting you with nurses on LinkedIn because there are many nurses out there who are wonderful writers and are really interested in literature and writing and communication. I haven't communication. done LinkedIn yet. Maybe I should. That's right. Well, we'll have <laughs> to have so a chat on the phone again, and we'll, yeah. we'll get you hooked up. So I'll well, give you a you ring so sometime soon. Thank you so much for your enthusiastic review and, and uh, for having me on as your guest. I've really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, and we've kept you up late. You're on the East Coast, so thank you oh, so much okay. for being I'm with us. I'm a night us. owl. I'm a night owl. All good. All <laughs> right. Well, you have a wonderful night, Enid. You too. Be well, both of you. Thanks. Okay. You as well. Take care. Bye. Uh, what a oh, wonderful storyteller. She is an incredible storyteller, and I'm sad to have her hang up. I know. I know. I I. <laughs> I I was so comfy in the chair just listening to her talk. I mean, you don't get audiobooks like that. You really don't. I mean, as if I'm I'm in my commute, uh, going down to work or whatever it is, I, I, I could just listen to her all day long, just tell the story. Mm-hmm. And, and she really did enlighten me and, and hopefully the other nurses out there, our community, about Florence, um, seeing her in a different light. And uh, Right. I, she def- definitely was a trailblazer, a pioneer, and uh, certainly going against the grain and very edgy for her time, of course. So she sh- Yes, she certainly was, as was Gustave Flaubert. So the meeting of their minds in Egypt in this book is absolutely brilliant. And the article that there are some excerpts from on RNFM Radio about Nightingale and Shomer, I just want to read one paragraph here. Shomer wrote, The nightingale I discovered and revived was not the dour and humorless figure so many of us associate with her name, but a vivacious rebel, every bit the intellectual equal of Gustave Flaubert, with whom she shares her fictional adventures in my novel. Both of them were geniuses who balked at the world but left it richer than they found it. And I think that is so true about Nightingale. And this book just adds so much to what we understand about her. Agreed. Agreed. Um, and yeah, so I, I think we can certainly, our community can help push that book out uh, to again give our community another perspective on Florence. Because we use her, we reference her all of the time. But again, this side of the story, this side of her, I think, doesn't really come to light. And Enid did such a wonderful job this evening uh, to really, I think, uh, summarize uh, the book and just the need to read this and to have that much more of an appreciation for Florence. I know I do after tonight. That's right. Oh, I do as well. I do as well. And I look forward to rereading the book actually sometime on a summer afternoon when I can just lay in under a tree and reread so many wonderful passages in the book. So, right. Kevin, I notice it's 10 after the hour, and we could talk about Enid Shomer and Florence Nightingale all night, but do you want to mention a little something about the new post that you wrote on RNFM Radio today? Yeah, well, of course, you know, we are very thankful. Keith and I are genuinely uh, so appreciative. Deep down, we want to thank each and every one of you guests and our listeners for helping RNFM to continue to be here, to be present, and to continue to grow and create partnerships and collaborate. And so part of that collaboration is that we want to continue to promote nurses, nursing, and you know writers, authors, bloggers, vloggers, just the presence that you 
are that you have out there, the leaders. Keith and I are going to have commentary. We love to to give our spin on things. We love to talk. That's why we started a radio show. I mean, part of the reason, but but we do love to hear what people have to say. And so each and every Monday night, we have a guest, a guest or guests on our show that we interview. But Keith and I had been tossing around the idea of of having additional shows for RNFM. And yes, it would be nice to have some guests, but we know that there are so many other compelling news stories out there, uh, you know, whether it's just breaking news or things that are just in the ethers, and that we want to bring that to our audience and, of course, give you our spin on things. And so Keith and I are going to be adding more shows here on RNFM. And for right now, what we're going to do is something during the week, probably one additional show either once a week or maybe once every other week at first, just to feel things out. We'll probably do a daytime format, and we'll see how it goes. And we're going to be scouring the, the Internet for stories, blog posts, videos, whatever it is, and we're going to bring that on the show, and we're going to talk about it. And what we wanted to do was welcome the opportunity for our community members. If they are content creators, then let us know. Uh, send us those stories either via email uh, the contact info on our contact page is there, either Facebook, post it on Facebook, hit us up on Twitter, uh, or email us directly at insider at rnfmradio.com. And we would love to have you help uh, not only supply us with content, but we'll talk about that content on the air. And, of course, we'll give you a shout-out whether you created the content or whether um, you just pointed us in the right direction, but we will we will post that on rnfmradio.com, but we, of course, will announce it on air live here. And what we want to do is, again, promote our community. So we're going to talk anyway. We're going to find the stories. They're out there. There are things that we want to say, and we give our guests an opportunity to talk about them and promote them. We want to promote them. But here's an opportunity where Keith and I can really make this a talk show talk about just various things that are happening out there in the world, and again, just our own commentary. So well, if you want to be a part of that, yeah, if if you want to be a part of that, then by all means, we're going to do it anyway. But that's right. why not, you know, why not have us collaborate and promote you, promote your presence, your platform, your social media presence out there, uh, and, and send us some, just some, some dialogue that we, that we can chat it up about. So that's right. That's right. So we'll see how this vision expands and how it grows right. and how it takes. And some of these shows may be, I, I'm assuming for now, they'll be live broadcasts. We may even do some mm-hmm. podcasts that are pre-recorded. Sure. So we'll see how things develop over time. It won't be at this point every week at a specific time, but we'll be right. sending out information about how this vision comes to bear. But we feel like there is room for more talk here, as long as you don't mind listening to us talk just a little bit more, and we'll see how the conversation evolves. So we're very excited about that, and we'll keep you posted. And there's some other exciting things that we think will be coming down the pike over the course of the, the rest of 2013 into 2014. So that'll right. it'll all be very exciting, and we'll be keeping you posted on how those things come to fruition and manifest themselves. Yeah, this so is just Kevin, one of the many of, changes. Yeah, right. There's just one of the many. And and what it comes down to is sometimes just there are talk radio shows that just do that. They pull in news stories. There's commentary back and forth. There's banter. There's laughs. There could be some tears. You know, I I might cry. I don't know. But you might. We won't share that with our. Yeah. 
So That's right. Um, I might make you cry, well, Kevin. You, you, well, you never know. You, you, you're deep down here, brother. <laughs> you touch my heart sometimes. Tugging at those heartstrings, I'll tell you. Oh, um, thank you. Thank but, you. So but, I wanted to mention to our listeners, Kevin, because it's around quarter after the hour, that next week we won't be on the air live. We're not doing a show. It's July 4th week. There's a lot happening. Uh, Mary and I, my wife and I, are having our 24th wedding anniversary on Tuesday. So it's a big week for a lot of people. So we're going to be taking some time off. And I think you're taking a vacation, Kevin, aren't you? That that applause was for you and for me. Heck yes, I'm taking a vacation. I'm getting the heck out of here. Um, All right. Yes, yes. No, congratulations on the on the anniversary. Uh, my you. love to both of you. And, of course, yes, we are heading out to California. Sand in between our toes and just hanging out. And I'm not exactly sure what we're going to do, uh, but we are avoiding Disneyland, uh, those long lines. We're just going to chillax and just hang out in San Diego. So, hey, if you happen to be in San Diego, I'm going to be in La Jolla. I'll tweet all that stuff out. I'm not going to give you the address because, uh, you know. You don't want to do just that. walk up into the house. But hey, if you see me hanging out on the beach, we're going to be in La Jolla, San Diego next week, hanging out, tweet it out. Maybe we'll have a meetup. So you never know. Right. I'd love to meet you if you're out there in California. Hey, it could be an RNFM radio flash mob in San Diego. How's right. That? Well, it's funny. I, I do randomly, of course, but I live in Colorado. I randomly run into people like, hey, you're familiar. Oh, wait a minute. And then they like put it together. And so they're like, oh, I listen to the show. But that's easier wow. you know, here because I do. I, I randomly run into people like, I know I know you from somewhere. Um, but why not California? I'm going to try that out. I'm going to tweet when I get there. Um, and, and I might even do some random four-square check-ins just to let you know where I am if you want to see me. Uh, so, oh, it's a, a Kevin up. Ross sighting in California. I see. Yeah, RNFM. But I'm representing RNFM. It's not just me. Oh, of course you are. But, of course you are. Hey, yeah. we could have a contest for the first person to find Kevin Ross in San Diego wins a RNFM radio I don't know, when we first have our next have our T-shirts printed or whatever. So there are oh, actually yes. folks just just want to mention down the road pretty soon there's going to be RNFM right. radio t-shirts maybe even scrub tops and some other wonderful products that we'll be putting up on our website and anything we have done will be made sweatshop free the we will have organic fair trade uh, cotton shirts so we will have all that information available to you as soon as we have those products created probably by the end of the summer and while we're talking about the summer, Kevin, I wanted to make sure people know we're not here next week on the 1st, but on July 8th, we're having a roundtable, and it is an LPN roundtable. We will be talking with several licensed practical nurses or licensed vocational nurses. We're actually looking for one more, if you're listening to this, and it's it's not after July 8th. We're looking for another person to join the roundtable, and we're going to be talking about the contributions of practical nurses to the nursing industry. We haven't really given them their due here on RNF and Radio, so we'll be talking about practical nursing on July 8th. On July, we need 15th, another LPN we'll be having, on there. Yeah, we could use one more LPN. Uh, we have a couple, oh. but I'd like two. I'd like three or four actually. So okay, let's get a few let me see if I, I might know. I have a couple. I have a couple in my back pocket, figuratively, of course. Ah, um, let ah, me see if yeah. I might be able to get someone to call in on that show that would, on the 8th. That, that would, would be, be great. great. I'll reach out to her. That would be great. Okay. Right. And on the 15th, we'll have Lori Brown. And, Kevin, could you say a little bit about Lori? 
Well, we actually had Lori Brown on, uh, I would say, I think mid-last year. Uh, she is an RN that also became an attorney and did some legal nurse consulting. And then also, um, I think we had some discussions about how to better prepare nurses uh, to make sure that they're insured, that they're covered, what questions to ask, uh, in, in you know, of course, in this litigious society, how to really protect ourselves as nurses. But what she is also working on is that she has started a, I guess, a collaborative, um, maybe a mastermind group, a collective, and empowered nurses. And so what we are going to learn from Lori this year, in 2013, is about empowered nursing or empowered nurses and we're always talking about empowerment growth of you know not only ourselves as professionals but personally as well and so i think Lori had uh quite a show uh last year uh you know when it came to legal issues and so i think mm-hmm. she's taking it to another level and talking about empowerment just in general globally speaking and so oh, um we look forward to having her on here yeah mid-july that's right, July 15th. And finally, on July, let's see, on July 22nd, we will have Tom Namaya. He is a nurse practitioner, homeopath, poet, writer, and artist, and a friend of mine. He's also a musician, actually. And he will be talking mostly about his writing. He wrote a book that he hasn't quite published yet called Journal of the Plague, and it's about working as a nurse early in the AIDS epidemic on the West Coast. And it's a beautiful book. Kevin has an electronic copy on his computer. I just finished reading mine. But Tom will also regale us with some stories of his work all around the world. He's an amazing, fascinating nurse and really has a lot to share. So, And we have a lot more coming your way in July, August, September, October, November, and even into December now. So just stay tuned. And I want to encourage folks to go over to Enid Shomer, to E-N-I-D. S-H-O-M-E-R, EnidShomer.com. Definitely go to her Facebook page and like her Facebook page. Buy her book. It is an incredible book. Of course, GGRN just won a copy of The 12 Rooms of the Nile this evening. Congratulations to Gigi. And again, find us at RNFMRadio.com, Facebook.com slash RNFMRadio, and we're on Twitter, Facebook, we're everywhere. Um, again, I'm Keith Carlson from Santa Fe. You can find me at NurseKeith.com, and I am at NurseKeith on Twitter. So Kevin, I'm going to say good night to you and to everyone and a shout out to Tara, our wonderful intern who's recovering from a procedure today and she is home resting and I think listening into the show. So much love to you, Tara. And Kevin, have a great week and a great vacation and I'll talk to you soon. That sounds great, Keith. It's always a pleasure. Tara, we missed you tonight, but obviously you're taking care of yourself just as we all should do, especially nurses. And, of course, I kid you not, I will be uh, four-squaring out in San Diego, so hit me up if you can find me. But don't bother uh, Keith. I mean, I know he's got much love for the community out there, but he's going to be celebrating um, in a more intimate level. And so we'll save that for the party when we're heading out to Orlando in October at the National Nurses and Business Association Conference. We'll be rocking it out there. And, of course, we'll have more details to follow on that where you can see Keith and I together and basically just, you know, hear us talk even more, but we'll be talking in person, collaboration on steroids. And, of course, as always, we do want to thank you profusely over and over again. 
because you have either spent your time with us live tonight or you're listening to us archived. We'll take what we can get. We, we love it either way. RNFM Radio is working hard to bring you valuable content while creating a global exchange among nurses and other clinicians. We hope that you in some way have felt uplifted, motivated, and ready for something that moves the needle for you. Find passion in your life and also with everything you create each and every day. Care for yourself while caring for others. And we look forward to having you back here with us again on RNFM Radio. Best to everyone out there during the 4th of July week. Be safe and be well.